Hello and welcome to a special episode of Resources Radio. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we're going to pay tribute to the life and work of Harvard Professor of Economics, Marty Weitzman, who died two weeks ago. I'll talk with Dr. Gernot Wagner, a close collaborator and friend of Weitzman's and a professor at New York University. We'll talk about two of Marty's seminal contributions to the field of environmental economics, learn how this work has shaped public policies around the world, and talk about who Marty was as a person. This week's episode is a little longer than our typical format, but we thought it was appropriate as we reflect on the many contributions that Marty Weitzman has made to all of our thinking about environmental policy. Stay with us. Okay, Gernot Wagner, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. And, you know, I'm really sorry that this is the context that we're having this conversation. There's a lot of wonderful things that we could talk with you about in terms of your own research and your own work. But uh, sadly, today, we're, we're here to talk about the life of your friend and colleague, uh, Marty Weitzman. So thank you for joining us. And uh, from all of us at RFF, our, our condolences. Thank you. So we're going to talk about... Um, Marty Weitzman today. Uh, but before we talk about him, it would be helpful for us to know a little bit about you and how you got to know Marty. So how did you get interested in environmental issues and climate change in particular? And then how did you end up getting to know Marty? Huh. So actually, that goes way back. Um, first week freshman year in college. Um, he was uh, one of my victims. I looked up, right? So, you know, dear Professor Weitzman, <laughs> I would like to study what you seem to have done for, you know, for a while. Um, so I, I literally, I just showed up at his office, um, you know, as an 18-year-old. Um, I remember distinctly, it was a, um, you know, sort of one of those... Very, very busy early days, right? Sort of trying to figure out what classes you would take and so on. But um, I stopped by at his office and he gave me something like 60 minutes, maybe even more um, to, you know, I mean, he, he, he started way back when himself, um, sort of his history. He gave me sort of his, his uh, motivation for studying these issues. Um, and I remember this sort of to be you know, sort of one of the warmest welcomes I had experienced by, by prof uh, at the time. Uh, you know, sort of, you know, as I was just saying, right, everyone gives you sort of one meeting, right? You always get 10 minutes with, with somebody at first, but, you know, chances good that they will not ask you back into their office if they're a busy professor. <laughs> well, in this case, you know, that started um, sort of many more such meetings. Um, and it was also a sort of a significant day for a different reason, not to be, get too personal, but it was the same day that I later on um, was in the same room as my now wife uh, for the very first time. Uh, <laughs> Kofi Annan gave a speech that, that afternoon. Um, I went to the talk, and our now eight-year-old son is uh, called Anan. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. So quite a day for you. That day you <laughs> yes. So, so yes, it's, it's quite imprinted in my memory, I can tell you that, meeting, <laughs> meeting Marty for the, for the first time. Yeah, fantastic. Well, so you mentioned just a moment ago um, the uh, background that Marty gave you about his own motivation for working on environmental issues. Can you share some of that and maybe a little bit more about his personal background, where he grew up, how he got interested in environmental issues and so on? Uh, yeah, so uh, you know, like I said, I met him in 1998. So obviously, there's many decades of his life before then. But I can tell you, actually, at this very first meeting, uh, you know, I you know, 
bright-eyed, bushy-tailed freshman. I had frankly no idea. But he basically started telling me the story of his Prices versus Quantities paper, uh, published in 1974, um, which, as far as I know, um, was sort of his first intellectual foray, at least, into this area. Um, and I guess, as so often with academics, academic economists, um, for him too, even for him, it started with a rejection. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he um, he was you know a very good economist at the time. Um, of course, um, uh, he studied the Soviet economy. He studied uh, sort of the price control system that the Soviets had put in place, and sort of tried to make sense of it all. Um, and his question basically was, you know, what what's better, um, controlling quantities or controlling prices in this context? In this context of a planned economy, um, he wrote up the paper. He submitted it somewhere. I don't remember where. It got rejected. Um, and one of the referees, apparently, um, told him, you know, have you thought about this issue that seems to be hot these days? Um, it was early 70s, um, beginning of the environmental decades, right? President Nixon, EPA, and so on. Um, have you thought about applying this to pollution? Same idea, same concept, controlling prices versus controlling quantities. Um, and, um, you know, the paper itself, actually, I recently reread it like this past week to sort of, you know, try to refresh my memory, or at least I reread the introduction to of make sure that I'm right in saying that he did recast the paper to be about pollution. Turns out, actually, that's not really the case. There's still a lot of sort of Soviet planned economy stuff in there. Um, but he did talk about it applying to the same idea, applying to pollution control. Um, and as far as I know, and again, of course, I didn't know him back then in the 70s, um, that was sort of his, uh, Murray's first foray into environmental issues um you know I'm, I'm sure he you know personally cared about those issues himself he certainly did in the last couple of decades of his life he cared deeply about them um but i guess as is to be expected from someone who is sort of as as intellectual in many ways as he had been um his first foray into the economics of these questions was apparently through um, through a rejection from a submitted uh, paper. Nice. Yeah, if only all of us could be so productive with our rejections. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Sort of goes a little bit counter to right, sort of keep them in the mail, right? Something gets rejected, you just send it back and blindly submit it again, right? Because somebody's going to take it. Well, he took, a, he took a reverie report from a rejection to heart and, you know, made something out of it. Well, frankly, made, made his most cited paper ever out of it, turns out. Yeah, yeah, pretty amazing. Uh, I wonder if he ever found out who that anonymous referee was. Um, <laughs> yeah. Would have been interesting to find out. So um, so the the paper we're just talking about, the Prices versus Quantities paper, I wanted to, to talk a little bit more in detail about that paper and some of its sort of implications and how specifically it applies to pollution. I remember the first time I heard about Marty Weitzman's work was right after I graduated uh, from my master's program. I was working for Billy Pizer, who's an uh, environmental economist at Duke. And um, we were working on a paper about cap and trade. And in one of the comments, or maybe it was in the paper, he referred to something called a modified Weitzman type 
approach. And I had no idea what that meant at the time, uh, but I tracked the source and figured it out and eventually got to this 1974 paper and I read it and I didn't totally understand it either at the time. But, um, but you know, that, as you say, is his most cited work. So let's spend a little bit of time on it. And can you tell us about how this idea of prices versus quantities applies in an environmental context and then what some of its real world applications have been over time? Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, in, in some sense, the title <laughs> says it all, uh, uh, as is sort of his, you know, Marty's uh, attack with many of these papers were, you know, it's a very pithy title, um, and it is a truthful one. It is, in fact, on this sort of all-important instrument choice question, should we um, put a price on a particular pollutant? let's say CO2, carbon dioxide, or should we control the quantity? So, you know, concretely what that means is in many ways, is it a carbon tax or is it a cap and trade system? Is it an emissions trading system? And what he identified was that the answer to that question sh uh, should depend, does depend on what we don't know, on the uncertainties on the potential to be wrong. And of course, the point here, right, we are trying to do the right thing, quote unquote, by choosing the right policy, the welfare maximizing policy. Um, so what you want to do is you want to minimize those uncertainties. You want to minimize the potential to be wrong. Um, and that was the that was the excuse for, frankly, doing you know, a bit of math. Um, and then coming up with a very simple equation in the end that frankly, you know, as many of these papers go, sort of the more successful ones, it starts with a very interesting question, um, goes through some, you know, complicated math, complex math, not, un not unnecessarily complicated, but sort of the kind of math you need to answer the question. And then in the end, there's sort of this um, uh, sort of rule of thumb that comes out. And it certainly came out of this paper. And the sort of two-second summary of it is um, it's about uncertainties of costs of doing something about a particular pollutant and uncertainties around the benefits. Now, of course, given you know this is economics, so it is all about the marginal costs and the marginal benefits, what happens with the next ton of CO2 removed. Right? How do the benefits and the costs compare there? And in his paper, and frankly, his work in general, um, it was about the uncertainties. It was about the not knowing. And it was about minimizing those uncertainties, sort of minimizing the potential to be wrong in this instrument choice. Yeah, that makes sense. And thinking about the sort of real world application of the cap and trade approach um, or emissions trading approach. So we have lots of examples of this that have played out over time, whether it's, you know, lead in the United States, um, the European uh, emissions trading system, California's cap and trade program, Reggie, there's there's all these different cap and trade programs that are out there. Did you ever hear from Marty uh, sort of any reflections on the real world application of this idea and how sort of he thought it was being carried out in the real world? Um. Not too much, frankly, you know, sort of a, a, a bit uh, in the sense that like, he's certainly in sort of, you know, no uncertain terms, personally preferred 
just you know, the simplest possible uniform global ideally carbon tax. He thought it was just you know, sort of a much simpler approach, much more direct approach than trying to create a cap and trade system. Um, now, frankly, that said, actually, um, one of sort of the more fun sort of intellectual experiences uh, at the, the World Congress in uh, Gothenburg, Sweden, um, uh, a year ago, um, I had this, this uh, fortune of sitting on a panel with Marty on the one hand and Jo Stelbecke on the other, he, uh, who famously led the team in the European Commission that created the emissions trading system, sort of the you know the policy godfather of emissions trading in in Europe. Um, and, you know, you know, the two got along very well, let me put it that way. <laughs> and uh, uh, certainly Modi was very compl- uh, complimentary. So in many ways, he didn't even know, you know, he, he hadn't known Jos um, before, um, which also speaks to sort of Modi's, you know, focus on um, the intellectual, intellectual backbone as opposed to the sort of policy application. But frankly, he nodded along. He was very complimentary and sort of in many ways, the more sort of Jos got into the details of, you know, this is how it actually happened. Here is the reason why we have emissions trading. Here is what linkage means to us within the European Union and so on and so forth. Um, the more, you know, in many ways sort of Marty appreciated, you know, literally live there on the panel, right, in front of a couple hundred people, um, essentially saying, oh, yes, you know, I still like my carbon tax better than, than a <laughs> cap and trade system. Um, but I can understand, I can appreciate the complexities, the political economy, the legality, the legal reasons, frankly, why the European Union, um, frankly, after first considering a carbon tax, ended up choosing to implement the cap and trade system. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's move on from the prices versus quantities idea and go to another sort of signature piece of Marty's work. And, you know, these are just two of many contributions, of course, but um, but they're the two that I think are most prominent. Um, the, the, the second idea is uh, what he, and I believe you, uh, in your book Climate Shock, referred to as what are called fat tail risks when thinking about decision making around climate change. So can you tell us uh, briefly what is a fat tail and how does it apply to the problem of climate change? Sure. I mean, just to be clear, it was very much Marty who introduced this idea into the climate conversation. Yes, I ended up co-authoring a book with him, and yes, the term shows up there. But you know, he he invented, he introduced it. You know, he he didn't invent the term fat tails, but he applied it first to um, to climate sensitivity, um, which is sort of this all-important metric that links concentrations of CO two in the atmosphere to global average temperatures eventually, that every one of these three qualifiers is important. Um, and what Marty did in his work uh, was sort of he, you know, as his, as his want of doing, or was want of doing, um, he, you know, he spent about a year, basically, uh, digging into the literature on this topic. Um, he read a bunch of the, the IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and he literally read them cover to cover. He sort of had the printed copy on his desk uh, marked up with his own um, thoughts in the margins. And he focused, he zeroed in very quickly on this climate sensitivity metric and basically concluded that the IPCC might have cut off the tails of that distribution too quickly. Or in other words, 
um, right? So the left-hand side of this distribution, right, is sort of there's a sort of a neat or a clear uh, line one can draw because we know that adding CO2 to the atmosphere isn't going to decrease temperatures. So, right, so that's pretty easy. So it is very much a, a right skewed distribution. But then on the right-hand side, um, it seems less clear that one can, in fact, cut off these tails um, fully. And what Marty did was sort of go through the math and sort of a thought experiment. Um, so to the naked eye, a thin-tailed or fat-tailed distribution basically look almost the same. There's sort of a, you know, a tight st statistical definition of these things. Um, the fat tail distribution approaches zero infinitely slower than a thin tail distribution. So there's all this sort of stuff, which of course matters um, crucially. But when you draw them, you don't really notice a difference. So Marty basically said, wait a second. So how could the IPCC, you know, hundreds of climate scientists here, sort of the consensus document, how could they possibly conclude to use one of those distributions and not the other, right? And, and just, you know, just sorry to, mm -hmm. to jump no, in, but just for the for the audience that uh, hasn't taken economics or might not be familiar with what these distributions look like, if you sort of imagine a bell curve up on a piece of paper, the thin-tailed distribution goes to zero on either side of that uh, bell curve relatively quickly, whereas the fat tail risk, uh, when you get to the right side of that bell curve, it sort of trails off very slowly and takes a really long time to reach zero. So sorry to interrupt, just wanted yeah. to give no, that no. little yes, context. It, uh, yes, it is, right? And so it turns out you could draw a what is still a thin-tailed distribution, not to get too technical, but that is also um, very much skewed in one direction that basically looks, you know, one of these bell-shaped curves that has on the left-hand side, you cut it off quickly. On the right-hand side, you don't. And that, in fact, is what the IPCC had done. And that's what Marty focused on. So he focused on this right, right tail. Um, not because it is likely that we would be in a tail situation like this, quite the opposite. It is, in fact, in many ways, by definition, unlikely that any of these events are the case. But, you know, he zeroed in on what are the implications of those potential tail events. And it turns out that, well, there is a non-zero probability of very, very extreme temperature increases. Um, even due to, you know, relatively moderate, moderate, I would say, um, increases in concentrations of um, CO2. Or in other words, right, even if we target as a world community, as a policy community, even if we target a particular temperature target, and we basically say, right, temperatures globally shall not increase above a certain amount, we cannot exclude those extreme scenarios. Um, and that's what led him, Modi, very quickly to what has since become known as the dismal theorem, uh, which is to basically say, wait, if you take this seriously, if you take this to its logical conclusion, you cannot exclude those extreme events. Well, what happens? They drive everything. They end up driving everything. Um, and suddenly climate policy, climate change, um, becomes this very explicit 
risk uncertainty management problem, which you know many of us are talking about as a risk management problem to begin with, sort of an insurance problem. Well, this drives the point home more so than frankly anything else I'd ever seen up to that point, uh, looking at climate policy, climate change and its implications. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess, I mean, one way that I think about this is uh, when we think about the climate sensitivity. So, you know, if we are, if the world community targets, say, 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as sort of an end goal, there is still significant uncertainty about how much temperature rise is actually associated with that level of CO2 in the atmosphere. So while the sort of median or the best guess might be that 450 parts per million in the atmosphere leads to two degrees Celsius of warming, there is a non-zero probability that the increase in warming could actually be much, much more, maybe four or five or even higher, in which case, you know, the negative uh, impacts of that extreme scenario become incredibly important and become sort of the dominant risk that you really need to think about. And so when you spoke with Marty about this, what are, did he have kind of policy implications that he drew from this work? Or was he mostly focused on the the sort of theoretical side of things and didn't talk much about the application? Um, yes and no. So, uh, you know, anyone who had known him, sort of one of his more famous phrases, at least in person, was, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, I, you know, I can't wrap my head around this, which, of course, you know, sort of uh, really meant that he was sort of 10 steps ahead of you and thinking through the implications. And he was already thinking through sort of the exceptions to the rule and so on and so forth. Um, but essentially... You know, the, the specific policy recommendations, he, has, he had written himself in, in a couple of his papers on this issue, um, sort of these very pointed paragraphs where he basically says, look, we as economists have this tool kit. We have, for example, benefit cost analysis at our disposal, um, which, you know, tells us we, you know, we tally the benefits of a particular policy, we tally the costs. And we make an informed decision, right? We maximize well-being, welfare, human well-being, and we sort of uh, figure out what to do. And he basically wrote these sort of very pointed critiques of this approach um, and saying, you know, these climate economy models, and, you know, there's, there's lots of them out there that do this sort of standard benefit cost analysis, you know, most famously, of course, Bill Nordhaus's DICE model that's you know, been with us for a quarter century plus, um, and is, you know, this fantastic tool, right, to allow us to do this benefit cost analysis, and it is very transparent in its assumptions and so on and so forth. Now, Marty's critique was to essentially say, if you take this dismal theorem seriously, um, you draw this, you know, unfortunate, dismal conclusion, which is to say, the burden of proof suddenly is on those who say those tales don't matter. We can still use our standard benefit cost tools. It is not the other way around. It's not right for sort of you know someone like Marty to have to jump up and down and draw attention to the tail. It's the opposite. It is basically, uh, you know, things blowing up, blowing up in such a way that, you know, on a sort of very deep theoretical level, it's not even possible to calculate the, the mean, the median, the average result. So it's not even possible, if you take this 
fat-tailed question seriously. It's not possible to do what economists typically do. And of course, you know, that's a, that is a dismal conclusion, right? That's sort of saying, wait a second, you know, on a deeply, you know, theoretical, statistical level, you know, if sort of not to talk too much statistics here, but in a fat-tailed distribution, uh, the mean doesn't exist. The expected value doesn't exist. You can't actually calculate what economists calculate. So you have to cut off the tails sooner than a fat-tailed distribution would allow you to do, because otherwise you can't even do what we as economists, you know, typically do in these situations. And, you know, that is a, you know, that's a, that's a really, really potent critique of this, uh, of this uh, question. And it's uh, like, uh, you know, frankly, you know, in many ways, Modi himself, you know, I've, I've seen him debate Bill Nordhaus in person on these. I'm fortunate enough to see this a couple of times, you know, at the Yale Economics Department, at Harvard and so on, um, at, a, uh, at a symposium in honor of Modi last October, um, where, frankly, you know, the conclusion often among, you know, very, very smart economists in the room is, well, Modi is clearly onto something. He has written the most potent critique here. But in many ways, we still don't know what to do. We don't, you know, we don't, we can't now conclude, okay, and here is what we ought to be doing as a result. We, we, we don't have that. Like we, um, you know, he introduces things like, and suddenly things go to infinity, to negative infinity. Uh, and frankly, economists can't typically handle that because, you know, we do trade-offs, right? There is always, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, well, if you take his conclusion to the logical extreme, um, you can't do this. You would, you know, in some sense, you know, we'd have to go back to our caves, um, not, you know, not do anything, not emit any energy because um, you immediately, right, every additional gram of CO2 could potentially result in this catastrophe. Now, of course, you know, that's the extreme interpretation and he certainly wouldn't have subscribed to that. But, you know, the, the logical policy conclusion is we need to do much, much more than we currently do when it comes to you know, cutting CO2 emissions. Yeah, right. That makes sense. So those are, you know, two of many contributions that that Marty made to to this field. And, you know, we could talk about them endlessly, I think, and, and many will continue to talk about them endless, endlessly, which is good. Um, but before we close out with our top of the stack question, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, Marty as a person. I never got to meet him in person. I wasn't lucky enough. But um, can you tell us maybe a story or two about him that just helps gives us a, a sense of who he was as a person? Hmm. Um. Well, actually, maybe from his last year, from the last year now, um, I have never seen him quite as happy as him losing in a game of shoots and ladders against my five-year-old. <laughs> so, so, so just to be clear, right? So imagine sort of, you know, the most rational human being you've ever met, and that comes pretty close to Marty, right? Sort of very, very, you know, deeply thoughtful about, frankly, everything. And then uh, he was playing Shoots and Ladders, which if you know something about that game, uh, it is a game of pure luck. There is literally nothing you can do. There is, so yeah, anyway, so that, you know, 
full stop, right? It's not chess. It's not you know. It's it's none of that. Uh, it's pure luck. Uh, and and he might have lost three games in a row against my five year old. Uh, and he was giddy about it. Uh, I mean, it was it was one of these things where so you know imagine he, we were actually we were sitting in his study. So um um so the the, the eight year old at the time. So my, my two kids had piano lessons with uh, Jennifer Weitzman, his wife, who is a piano teacher. Um, and sort of that happened sort of frequently on sort of Friday afternoons. So, you know, two out of three times or so, I went there at least to pick up the kids afterwards. Um, and, uh, you know, I spent some time with Marty. And in this case, happens to be that, you know, he... He didn't want to do anything else. He didn't want to think about, you know, his the current problem. He just wanted to sort of, you know, relax, goof off, as it were. Uh, and, and he kept losing uh, against uh, against Sonia, and he loved it. Uh, he was sort of like uh, that was one of these sort of moments where, you know, he was all smiles. He, you know, he couldn't figure out uh, why he was losing. Of course, it was, you know, completely random. Turns out, <laughs> it wasn't that she was particularly good at the game or anything. Um, and he laughed out loud every time, you know, he, he slid down a ladder or a shooter. I guess a shoot, that's what he slid down on. <laughs> um, but he kept, you know, he kept, he kept wanting to play. He, he didn't want to focus on anything else. He certainly didn't want to talk about work at that time. Uh, he, he, he wanted more. He wanted to keep, keep losing, I guess. So at least trying, maybe, you know, luck would turn, it, turn for him and he would, he would be able to beat the five-year-old, which ended up not being the case in that particular <laughs> 20 minutes. Um, anyway, so, you know, he... Like, you know, that's sort of a silly example, of course, but, but uh, there were certain certainly moments of um, uh, him, you know, just completely, you know, in this case, yeah, I would say dropping his guard, right, and sort of just not thinking about, you know, frankly, anything uh, in this case, just, you know, fully focused. And, you know, just to, uh, like the flip side of this uh, is you know, he was very focused on whatever he was doing at the time, right? So, you know, there's some of us who, you know, check their Twitter feed while they um, um supposed to be doing something else. I'm, I'm speaking generally here, not about myself, of course. Uh, but, you know, so, you know, never, never, ever. Uh, you know, he certainly didn't do that. You know, he wasn't on Twitter. But frankly, you know, he focused on the one thing in front of him at any given time. He was not a multitasker. He didn't get distracted easily. Um, when he found his mind wandering in his study, he grabbed his recorder and started playing uh, himself before, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, he was able to refocus again on the task at hand. Um, and sometimes he just, you know, didn't want to do this, right? Sometimes he just went for a walk, went for a swim, or in this case, you know, played shoots and lads. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, yeah, wonderful. And so, so literally, he had, he had a recorder in his office, like one of those things that he uh, yes, learned how did. to play I in mean, grade you know, school. He had a collection of them, and you know, his you know his wife was the piano teacher, and he sometimes played recorder in his study while you know she was teaching some kids outside. Um, he was musical himself, certainly. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Gernot, thank you so much again for joining us and, and sharing these sort of professional and personal insights about your friend. And, um, you know, we're, we're so sorry that, uh, that, that this is the context that we're having this conversation. But, but we want to close it out with the same question that we ask all of our guests, and I'm going to modify it a little bit. Um, so we typically ask people to recommend something that they've read or watched or listened to recently that they think our audience would enjoy. So I'm going to ask you, what's on the top of your stack? What would you recommend? And also, what's something that you think Marty would recommend? Something he enjoyed, maybe along with playing shoots and ladders and, and playing the recorder? What else was he kind of musing on or thinking about or enjoying lately? 
Um, well, other than shoots and, and ladders, <laughs> <laughs> which, frankly, you know, it was a few months ago to be, to be clear. But actually, one of the so one of the my last conversations I remember having with him, frankly, wasn't a very uplifting one. It was about David Wallace Wells's book, The Uninhabitable Earth. Um, which you know is 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 a is a bit of a downer, I can tell you, right? It's sort of this comprehensive view, um, one of the latest um, that looked at um, you know what are if we if we piece if we put together everything we know about climate change, um, and you know in some sense try to be honest with ourselves, not try to sort of put a positive spin on things. It just looks much more dismal than frankly many of us want to believe, want to, you know, think about. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't know whether Marty read it cover to cover. I, I really don't. I do remember talking with him um, about it, and I certainly read it myself. Um, it's uh, it's uh, a not very uplifting read, but I think a very important one on this what Marty often described a wicked problem, right? Sort of one of the one of the tougher problems out there to try to get a handle off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually I read that book myself, and I um, uh, sort of have some thoughts on it. You know, I think it certainly did describe some of the most worrisome outcomes, um, but I think it did it did lack some nuance in terms of describing um, kind of what the central estimates were rather than all the worst case scenario estimates. And it's certainly important to think about both of them. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, that, that I mean kind just of to my... be clear, right? So, I mean, yeah. you know, David, uh, David Wallace Wells, right, is very sort of upfront about this and says, look, I'm not here to, uh, you know, plenty of people focus on sort of what's known in many ways. Um, let's focus here on sort of the uncertainties, what is not necessarily the most likely estimate, right? Not the mean, the median. Um, but basically, what could happen? And what can we say about this topic um, that, frankly, doesn't necessarily show up when one does focus on the means and the medians and the most likely outcome? And how likely are those scenarios? And, you know, the dismal conclusion, if you will, is that, you know, they seem more likely than, you know, your average newspaper headline would have you believe. Yeah. Okay, well, um, so certainly another book to add to the stack. I've 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 made it through my version, but but others can read it as well, and they can come to their their own conclusions. So, um, so once again, Gernot, thank you so much for for joining us, and we're you know, we're so sorry for the loss of your friend and, and your colleague. I think it's it's a huge loss for all of us in the environmental community. Um, but thank you for you know sharing uh, some details about his work and, and his life and and uh, your relationship. Thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. 
Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.